What a text before us. Paul's, in many ways, Paul's farewell letter to the churches of Asia. His farewell words to his friends, his partners in the gospel, those that he's grown to love as he served alongside them for years. They're sobering words, they're sensitive words, they're words that are full of emotion. The whole scene is full of emotion. In fact, this is a a scene in and of itself from verses 17 down to 38, and that's why I want to tackle the whole thing with you this morning. But before we do, I just want to set the stage with this thought. And really, here's the main thought that I want us to walk away with from this text. A life worth living and a life worth following is a life that displays and proclaims the gospel of the grace of God. Let me say that again. A life worth living and a life worth following is a life that has been captured or transformed and displays and proclaims the gospel of the grace of God. Eric Metaxas, a historian and biographer, writes this about, the, about three men in the introduction to a book of short biographies of their lives. He actually addresses the lives of seven men, but there's three that I think are helpful to us this morning to just hear the words of Metaxas about them and to consider their lives as we consider Paul's life and his words this morning. Metaxas writes this about William Wilberforce, who lived from 1759 to 1833. William Wilberforce gave up the chance to be a prime minister of England. Many have said that he put principle above party and gave up becoming prime minister. But for what did he surrender the prize of that office? He gave it up for the cause that to him was far greater than becoming the leader of the greatest empire in the world of the time. Wilberforce gave up his life for the sake of African slaves, people who could give him nothing in return. But Wilberforce knew that what God had given up for him was far greater. So he did what he did for the Africans he would never meet and for God. And this man's conversion to the Christian faith changed everything for him. Suddenly, he saw everything differently. Suddenly, he realized that everything he had been given, wealth and power and influence and connections and intelligence and a gift of oratory, was a gift from God. And he realized that it was a gift to be used for others. The choice was his, of course. But when you really know that God has given you something for others, it's hard not to use it for others. Wilberforce knew that taking everything he had been given and using it to improve the lives of others was the very reason he had been born. And by devoting himself to this for five decades of his life, he became one of the most important human beings who ever lived. He changed the world in a way that would have been unthinkable at the time. William Wilberforce. The second one that he highlights is a man that you might know of simply because of a movie. The 1982 movie Chariots of Fire Fire tells the story of Eric Little, or Liddell, however you want to pronounce it. He gave up the acclaim of millions to honor God. It's one of the most extraordinary stories in the history of sports, but it doesn't involve an athletic action. In fact, it involves deliberate athletic non-action. It was a historic decision by a devoutly Christian young man to forego the one thing that everyone said he should want and deserved— Namely, the opportunity to win an Olympic gold medal in one of the events in which he was most likely to win it. But God came first. 
And Liddell surrendered his best chance for Olympic gold. And if you read the book, you'll find out that's only half of the story as he goes on to serve as a missionary in China. Then Wilberforce continues. Then there is a brilliant and historic, heroic German pastor and theologian, Diedrich Bonhoeffer, who courageously defied the Nazis and surrendered his freedom and safety time and time again. He did that most notably in 1939 when he, was, when he made the fateful decision to leave the safety of America to return to Germany, simply because he felt that was what God wanted him to do. Ultimately, he gave up his life. His willingness to do that has inspired countless people to do the right thing in thousands of situations, and Bonhoeffer's story is inspiring them still. From these three men... They exemplify in their lives this principle that we're getting at from Paul's life and this text in Acts 20. That a life worth living and a life worth following is a life that displays and proclaims the gospel of the grace of God. These three men and Paul's life didn't just say that they knew Jesus. They didn't just say that they knew the gospel, but their lives were profoundly shaped by the gospel and the grace of God. So look with me at Paul's introductory remarks in his conversation here with these elders that he's called for from the church at Ephesus. And, and his words, though, directed directly to these elders are for us as a church. They're for us as a church. They're for the pastors here at Highlands and those future pastors that will be here. But it's for us as a church to hear and look at Paul's life. So, so look at Paul's introductory remarks in verses 17 to 21 of Acts 20. Look what Paul says. Let's, uh, at the end of verse 18, when he starts his speech, he says, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time. From the first day I set foot in Asia. He says, look at my life. Paul only does this on a few occasions, but here it's quite significant. Look at my life. I'm going to lay out for you my life, and I'm going to point to it for an example, and I'm going to use my life as a basis to then call you to action as well. So remember, he says, remember, how I lived among you. You know how I lived among you the whole time. How does he describe it? First of all, mainly as serving the Lord. Verse 19. He lived among them serving the Lord. But what was his mode of operation? What was his attitude? What was his sort of manner of life? It was in humility and tears and trials. With humility and tears and trials, he's serving the Lord and living with them. And then look how he describes how he's serving the Lord. This is the method that he served the Lord while he was there. He did not shrink back from something. He did not shrink back from declaring anything that was profitable to them. And he's going to define that later on for us, what was profitable and what he didn't shrink back from later in the text. He did not shrink back from declaring anything that was profitable. And, and he taught them in both public and from house to house. He, he taught them in forums like this, the synagogues or in the public gathering spaces. But he also taught them as individuals, concerned about everyone as an individual. And testifying not just to one ethnic group, but to both Jews and Greeks. And what was the content of his testifying? The content of his testifying was the gospel of God. 
Look at it. He testified to them all, both Jews and Greeks, about the repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 21. In short, this is the introduction to what Paul's going to say from the verses that follow this. He just wants to say, remember my life. I lived among you. I served the Lord. I did that faithfully. And here's how I served the Lord faithfully. This is how you should measure my life. And this is how you should measure your lives. Did not shrink back from anything that was profitable. I did not shrink back from teaching you both in public and private. And the one thing that I was concerned about testifying to everyone, everyone who I came in contact with was the gospel of grace that called you towards repentance of God, towards God and faith in Jesus Christ. In short, Paul says, and he sets the stage for this to come now, a life worth living and a life worth following is one that displays and proclaims the gospel of grace. So Paul says in verse 22 now, and if you're able to underline in your Bible, if you're taking notes, there's basically three sections that this breaks down into from this point on. Verse 22, you're going to see the words, and now behold. And you can underline that if you'd like to or write it down. And then in verse 25, you're going to see these words again, and now behold. And then in verse 32, you're going to see the word, and now. Minus the behold part, we'll get there in a second. But these are the three main points he wants to make through this text and through his speech. And the first one, and now behold. What does he want them to behold? He wants them to behold something, something that he's not changed. They knew how he lived with them in the past, and he wants them to see this. And now, here's what's happening now in my life. Behold this in my life. Nothing has changed. And here's his point, verses 22 to 24. Paul wants them to behold that a life captured by the gospel of grace still testifies to the gospel of grace to those you haven't heard yet. Look at it with me again, verse 22 to 24. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me that in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of value or as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. See, Paul's life has been captured by the gospel of grace, and he desires to testify to the gospel of grace to those that God has called him to testify it to. He's compelled by the Spirit. And even being compelled by the Spirit, he willingly moves towards difficulty. He willingly moves towards suffering. He willingly moves towards danger and trouble. He doesn't run from it. He knows that he has to face the difficulty and the suffering in order to accomplish his life's goal, his life's purpose. Verse 22, you know, Paul says, I don't really know what's going to happen. I don't really know the extent of what's going to take place. All I know is that the Spirit keeps telling, prophesying through the prophets to me everywhere I go, that if I continue on this path to Jerusalem, suffering awaits. What's amazing to me about this is the similarities of the life of Christ as he sets his face towards Jerusalem. And he knows what awaits. 
Paul says in another text, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And here, Paul puts this on display. Imitate Paul as Paul imitates Christ. What what compels Paul? He says the Spirit is what constrains him. The Spirit is what compels him, yes. But what compels him? In our, in our thinking, in our minds, in leadership or business or productivity language, we might hear somebody say to you, what compels you or ask you this question? What compels you in your life? What's, what are you living for today? Do you know your why? Do you know your purpose? What's your personal mission statement? What's your family mission statement? What's your business mission statement? What's your purpose for living and doing everything you do? These business and leadership and productivity gurus would say Paul knew very clearly what his purpose was, what his goal was. He knew his why, and he was not going to let go of it. He knew what he needed to accomplish with his life. He knew why God had placed him on this planet. He knew what it would look like to reach his goal, and that would be to testify the gospel of grace to those who had not heard it. But what's interesting about this is that Paul alludes to the fact that this really wasn't his goal. This wasn't his purpose. This wasn't his accomplishment. He really wasn't concerned about his own safety, his own comfort, or his own legacy. He wasn't concerned about his own kingdom building. He was concerned rather for something else. He was captured by something far greater. He was captured by something far more valuable. There was something far more precious to him than personal success and personal safety and personal comfort. And that's why Paul can say what he says next in verse 24. Look at it again with me. Look what Paul says. In contrast to the suffering that's coming, he says, I don't count my life as anything, of any value. Or as precious to myself. How can he say this? Because Paul, in contrast, says the value of his life is definitively attached to his faithfulness in in testifying and proclaiming the gospel of grace. One commentator, the New Testament scholar of of a generation past, wrote this, F.F. Bruce. He writes this, Self-preservation was not a motive which he esteemed highly. His main concern was to fulfill the course which God had marked for him to run preaching in the Spirit's power the good news of, the, of God's free grace in Christ. Life and death was not the issue that mattered. Hear this. What mattered most was, as he told another church, that Christ should be magnified in his body, whether by life or by death. Philippians 1.20 So what was of greatest value to Paul? What was of greatest importance to Paul? That he should accomplish and finish his divinely given call and task in this life. His divinely given purpose, his race, his course, his stewardship. He wanted to finish, and that was to preach the gospel of the grace of God. Here at Highlands, we have taken for ourselves a purpose statement. Many of you, hopefully if you've gone through the Membership Matters class recently, are familiar with this. And hopefully if you've been here for a while, you're familiar with this. But we say it this way. We exist to display the glory of God by making disciples through the gospel of grace. 
This is one of the texts that informs our purpose of the church. This is one of the texts that should inform your purpose as a life. And my, my one question to you at this point is, have you even considered in your own personal or mission statement or how you think about your life, where you live, what you do, what you eat, how you spend your time, who you hang out with? Have you considered this, that the purpose for your life is the same purpose that God gave Paul? To testify to the gospel of grace to those who have not heard. Does that influence your life, your decisions, where you go, where you're willing to head, what kind of suffering and difficulty you're willing to face, what neighborhood you buy and what job you take, where you settle, what you do? And you say, well, man, why would I do that? You, gotta see, you have to see it as more precious, like Paul does. The question is then, have you been captured by this grace? Have you, has your life been transformed? Have you been captured by it as more precious and more beautiful? Or does life and death really matter to you more than testifying to the gospel of grace in your life? A life worth living and a life worth following is a life that displays and proclaims the gospel of the grace of God. Which brings us to verse 25. And his second statement that he wants them to see. He says, and now, behold. Uh, and I love the, the way he does this. And now, behold. He, he wants to reach out sort of metaphorically and grab him and say, listen, look, look. The second thing he wants them to see is a life that's captured by the gospel of grace considers the dangers of deviating from the gospel of grace. A life, first of all, that's captured by the gospel of grace is very concerned about testifying to the gospel of grace to those that haven't heard. But secondly, a life that's been captured by the gospel of grace is very concerned and considers the dangers of deviating from the gospel of grace. Verse 25 to 31. Paul declares, first of all, in verse 20, or excuse me, verse 25, that he is innocent for their spiritual lives. How can he say this? How can he say this? Verse 26, he's innocent of the blood of all of you. Why? Because verse 27, he did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. That's shorthand for saying, remember what he didn't shrink from in the introduction? He didn't shrink from saying anything that was profitable to them. Now he says, I didn't shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. That is to say, the gospel of grace. And all its implications. The New Testament, the entire scriptures, is full of implications about how the gospel of grace and things that are profitable to us in practical ways. It's full of it. In our culture around us, we desperately need to apply and heed the whole counsel of God and how it applies to our cultural situation and our church and our lives And pastors, those that God will raise up here at Highlands and those who are here, men in this church, do not shrink from preaching the whole counsel of God. Even when our culture pushes back and says, that's odd, and that's outdated, and that's countercultural, and that's not American. Paul says, I did not shrink from preaching to you the whole counsel of God, and therefore, because I did not do that, I am innocent of your blood. I've given you everything you need. 
Now, it's up to you how you're going to respond to the word of truth that was proclaimed to you. So Paul moves from that statement and now says, turns to these elders and to the churches that they're going to go back to to consider the dangers of deviating. Consider the dangers of deviating from the gospel. He says to them in verse 28, Pay careful attention to yourselves. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. And he calls these pastors, these elders out, and he says, this is why you have to pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock, to everyone in the flock. Because the Holy Spirit has appointed you. The Holy Spirit has given you Elders, pastors, the responsibility, and therefore sheep, the responsibility to heed and listen to those elders, those pastors who have been appointed over you to guard and care for you and to feed you. And why is this important? Because what he says, God himself has obtained with his own blood, obviously referring to the sacrifice of Christ. And we sang about this this morning. His church has been purchased by his blood. Have you ever bought something and then loaned it out to somebody else? Warily? Very concerned? Okay, you can use this, but here's about ten rules I want you to follow. Because this thing that you've purchased... Maybe a jet ski, a boat, fishing pole, a pair of skis. That's precious to you. You bought it. It's yours. You're going to entrust it to somebody else for a time to enjoy, to participate in a fun event with, to use, enrich their life with. But you want it back in a better condition or just as good condition as you sent it out, right? Jesus purchased his church with his blood. He's jealous for his church. Pastors, elders have the responsibility and every member by extension has a responsibility for one another and to care and guard the church of Christ from deviating from the gospel. And here's why. He warns them. Verse 29. I know that when I depart, after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Jesus himself warns of this. John 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, he sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. And the call here that Paul is making to all of the under-shepherds that the Holy Spirit is pointing over the churches throughout the world is that they would follow the shepherd's example and protect the flock. 
from the wolves. This is a warning. Paul knows that after he leaves, this was going to happen. This is, this is the ever-present danger. Paul warns Timothy of something similar in this regard in 2 Timothy 4, 1-5. to We won't read it, but you can look there. Uh, 2 Timothy 4, 1-5. to Then he also says, from the inside... There's dangers that can emerge from the inside, from your own, among your own selves, from the congregation, and maybe even from the elders themselves. Men will arise speaking twisted things to draw the disciples, the believers, away from following Christ, to follow them. This is why a church has to have doctrinal clarity. This is why the elders need to be clear on what they believe and what they don't believe, what the scriptures teach, what it doesn't teach, and why the elders, the pastors, and the congregation must have doctrinal unity. Why? Because people are going to arise and emerge and want to sort of weasel their way into this congregation speaking twisted things that sound really good, but at the end of the day are drawing you away from Christ. So he says... Be alert. Verse 31. Be alert. Elders, pastors, yes, be alert. Congregation, yes, be alert. Why? Remember how Paul lived among him for three years. Remember what Paul did for three years. He did not cease, night and day, he says, to admonish, to exhort every one of you with tears. Congregation, Never tire of pastors going after you and admonishing you and challenging you to follow Christ and to follow truth. Don't grow tired of that because that's evidence of pastors who care for your eternal souls. Night and day, he did not cease to admonish and warn them of the dangers of deviating from the gospel. A life captured by the gospel of grace considers the dangers of deviating from the gospel of grace and he warns those around us. John 17, Jesus prays for his church and he says to the Father, sanctify them, set them apart in the truth, your word is truth. And we read that, and, and as pastors in a congregation, we think, man, this is an overwhelming task. This is an overwhelming call. It seems like there's these ever-present dangers, and there's these wolves that are going to come in, and people are going to come into the church and try to pull us away from following Christ. And if Paul knows that once he's gone, these wolves are going to creep into the church at Ephesus, how much more so our church? If men are going to arise, even from among the pastors, those in the congregation, and, and sort of twist things and try to draw people away, man, is there any hope? Can, can we even, like, trust our pastors? Can we trust the church? Can we trust things? Uh, where do we go from here? It seems like Paul's painting a very bleak an unhelpful picture. So where does Paul turn to us, turn us to now? He says, and now behold, and he says, look at me. And he says, and now behold, now look at me. But all along, has he really been saying, look at me? No, he's been saying, look at my life and see the effect of the gospel of grace in my life. I'm merely a conduit. I'm merely a, a window, so to speak, to put the gospel of grace on display for you. And so look what he says in verse 32. 
and listen to these words. Listen and hear the sweetness of these words, the hope-filled, life-giving words that come flowing out of Paul's mouth. And now, he says, verse 32, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. See, a life that's captured by the gospel of grace commends, that is, entrust the lives of others to the all-sufficient grace of God. That's the safe place. That's what godly pastors, godly elders are supposed to do, entrust and point others to the grace of God. Point them to God. Point them to the gospel of grace. This is what Paul does. He says, all I'm doing in my life is trying to point you to the gospel of the grace of God at work in my life and the implications for your, your life. I've taught you. I've warned you night and day. That's what I've done. I've pointed you to the gospel. And now I'm leaving. But that's not hope, hopeless. Because it's not about me. It's not about my kingdom. It's about the kingdom of God. And so now I commend you to God and to his all-sufficient word of grace. When Paul is not present, you can have confidence in this. When the wolves appear, you can have confidence in this. When men speak twisted doctrine, you can have confidence in this. When you are facing temptation alone and discouraged and don't know where to turn, you can have confidence in this. When your pastors are not accessible, you can have confidence in this. God and the word of his grace. For us who serve as pastors, we know that the best way to guard and care for and feed the flock is to constantly and consistently be pointing the flock to the gospel of grace. Point them to God. Point them to His grace in Christ, the the cross, our forgiveness of sins, the power of new resurrection life. That's the best way to guard and care for and to feed the flock is point them to Jesus and His grace. The gospel of grace is the only reliable guide and the only guard against false gospels and deviant doctrines. It's the only reliable guard. And it was refreshing this week to hear just of a conversation in this church of people who are thankful to hear the truth. Because when you hear the truth over and over and over again and you're pointing to the gospel and pointing to grace, then when falsehoods and deviant doctrines emerge, you know what they are. But if you never hear the truth and the truth is clouded and veiled or sort of buried under half-truths or not clearly given, it's difficult to discern when false gospels are creeping in. So church, look to God and look to the gospel of his grace and pastors continue to teach the gospel of grace. One commentary says it this way. Well, first of all, let me read this text in verse 32, the last part. Why does Paul do this? I commend you to God and the word of his grace. Why? Because it is able to build you up, to cause you to be strong, and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. It can cause you to grow now. It can give you, to give you strength now to endure, and it will sustain you to the very end to bring you to the point of enjoying the inheritance of all the saints, to bring you to glory. This is the gospel of grace. So this commentator writes this. 
it is significant that these blessings come through a commitment to the word. Paul and Luke know nothing. They know nothing of the idea that church leaders stand over the word committed to them and are in control of it. On the contrary, church leaders stand under it. And as the church leaders stand under the word and commend their church to it, here's what happens. The church is strengthened and the saints are encouraged to endure to the end. What an amazing promise. And why do we know it's going to stand? Well, Because God himself does this. God himself will feed, guard, and sustain his people. Ezekiel 34, he is the good shepherd. John 10, he is the good shepherd. Even when bad shepherds emerge, if you're looking to God and his grace, he will sustain you. God himself will guard you from wolves. God himself and the word of his grace will guard you against false teaching. God himself and the word of his grace will seek out his people and lead them into truth through the power of his spirit. God himself and the gospel of grace will nourish and preserve and give strength through suffering. This is the promise of the grace of God to us through Christ. So those who have been transformed by the gospel of grace willingly commend and entrust others to the gospel of grace. To be guarded by it, to be sustained by it, not by us. And then look at Paul's conclusion, verse 20, or 36 to 38. This is what it looks like when lives have been transformed and captured by the gospel of grace, both from the, the elder, the pastor, the leadership side, as well as the, just the general church congregation side. This is, this is the result, verse 36 to 38. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. And then you read some of the letters, and you think, the people actually liked this guy. Even though he said really hard things and got in their face and told them they were sinners and confronted them and said, hey, you need to kick these people out of your church and you need to handle this and you need to do this. What's the result? The result is a church and a people who have been transformed by the grace of God. And you've heard of the fellowship of the ring. What a tearjerker scene at the end when Frodo gets on that boat. But have you experienced the fellowship of those connected and transformed and captured by the gospel of grace? Stories like the fellowship of the ring just give us a glimpse into the fellowship and the joy of serving side by side with those who have been captured and transformed and are encouraging one another by the grace of God. A life worth living and a life worth following is one that displays and proclaims the gospel of grace. Let's pray.